Good day, tokers and toquettes and non-toking lovers of liberty. It's Radical Russ here. Uh, we are live at the Crystal Gateway Marriott in Virginia for the closing plenary session of the 2015 International Drug Policy Reform Conference. People are gathered in the audience. We're waiting for the plenary session to begin.
Michael Russ here at the Crystal Gateways Marriott. We are still Karen. How are you? Nice to see you. Sorry, my hand is a little honey. Oh. I washed it, but then it came mm, back. That's wonderful. Russ, I'm actually Rochelle, uh, Rochelle Young from the podcast. Oh, oh yes, talk. Rochelle. Yeah, nice to meet you. It's nice to meet you, too. Yeah, just, just a warning, I'm live on speaker oh, okay. right now. But well, hello, Russ's listeners. <laughs> there we go, yeah. I, I, told, I told them that I'd stream the uh, closing plenary. So, uh, Karen O'Keefe here from Marijuana Policy Project, Rachel Young from This Week in Drugs. How'd the yeah. podcast go? Did it get a lot of... Yeah, it was actually one of our most popular uh, podcast episodes, the Ohio Legalization debate. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, So I'm actually doing a podcast as part as like a hobby, a side project about um, broader drug policy reform. Um, And Russ and Dan Riffle were actually on our show to debate the Ohio Initiative. Yeah. yeah, it was yeah, a lot of fun. It was one of our more popular episodes. Yeah. I'm really glad you guys. I hope uh, I hope the next time that. I'm on, it's not something so contentious. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for everything. Absolutely. I'll see you later. Bye. Bye there, Karen. Patty, hello. hello. I should let y'all know I'm live on Spreaker right now. So say hi what to the world. Hi world. Hi. Spark the conversation. <laughs> Hashtag. Hashtag. <laughs> Go to sparktheconversation.org and tell us your story. Why do you think marijuana should be legalized? We uh, want to hear from you. Because I smoke it and I don't want to go to jail. Yes. That's a really good reason. Sorry, I'm really selfish about this. Really? It's all okay. about me. I don't want to go to jail. We don't <laughs> if want everybody to else doesn't want to go to jail, that's I'm cool. sick of waiting on drug dealers. I want to store with ours. <laughs> there, there you go. That's a good spot. It's like, can I, can I smoke it? Can I grow it? Can I buy it? We're good. <laughs> Oh, yes, let's do this. We're doing a Spark the Conversation. I really want to stay, but I'm really going to be. Here we go. Um, you're coming to the Cathars. You're live, by the way. Oh yeah, you gotta come to the Cathars. You gotta warn people when they come and start talking. What's that? I'm on live, by the way. That's our rave dance party, the mini burn with the temple, uh, which is an effigy to uh, victims of the drug war. When does this happen? We will be uh, there uh, this evening. The temple burn begins at 10:30 p.m. at the Washington Monument, and that will be preceded by a DJ who will spin fat beats for us until approximately sunrise. How fat will the beats be? They will be extremely fat, juicy, Are we like Orson Welles fat? Pre-diabetic fat. Pre-diabetic fat. Jim Higdon jumping in. Absolutely. And the kids from SSTP will be there with their lights and their spirit. That sounds fun. And their energy. 10.30 at the Washington Monument. I'm there. Thanks, Lauren. DPA. So many people gathered here. Uh, the, the main room is filling up. There were over 1,500 people that had registered. Don't know how many of them are going to be here uh, with us at this uh, particular event, so we'll find out. But right now, uh, it's looking good. Very packed. Lots of friends here, of course, as you can tell, walking through and talking to people. We'll see if we can run into anyone else we can say hello to, just as an impromptu thing. Passing by the Spanish interpreter's booth. Oh, looks like they're starting. Crouching on the floor, leaning against the 
role or sitting on a friend or a new friend's lap. Yeah. We promise in two years the rooms in Atlanta are larger. I am, I'm Stephen Goebling, the Deputy Executive Director of the Drug Policy Alliance. I had the, the privilege of coordinating the, the program, and I just want to just take the privilege, I just want to you know, take this moment to acknowledge the session curators, the speakers, the moderators, who made what uh, I think many of us agree is the best reform conference ever. And of course, it was nothing without you and your extraordinary contributions, your questions, your challenges, your presence. Thank you. And finally, uh, you have all seen our great friends from the Hungarian Civil Liberties Union roaming this conference with their video cameras, and now here is a very special 10-minute treat for all of you. See you all soon. Presenting a Drug policy reform is many things, but it is foremost a movement for liberty and freedom. Freedom from oppression, freedom from fear, freedom from incarceration, freedom from racism, freedom. That's what we need to keep in mind, that that core element of freedom is actually pivotal to who we are. It is what unites us with all the other human rights movements that have gone before us and the ones of which we are increasingly becoming a part. More than 1,400 people from 71 countries came to Washington, D.C. to attend the International Drug Policy Reform Conference organized by the Drug Policy Alliance. There are so many vibrant communities represented at this incredibly colorful meeting. For example, medical marijuana patients, psychedelic researchers, law enforcement officials, and public users. There is one goal that unites them all to end the global drug war. The drug reporter video team came to Washington, D.C. to learn about the new trends of drug policy reform in the U.S. and around the world. doing 
marijuana education. Legalization has so many models and it can take so many forms. Do you, do you think there are any dangers of choosing the, the wrong model? Absolutely. Uh, I think what happened in Ohio, or what almost happened in Ohio, was, would have been a disaster. To have an oligopoly model written into the state constitution for uh, tens of private investors. Imagine the development of the United States of America if in the 1700s or 1600s the King of England granted a royal charter to 10 families, only these families could ever grow tobacco. Imagine the kind of aristocracy we would have today. It was the marijuana smokers themselves who said, we don't want this model. On the other states, um, I think the states, the 50 states, are supposed to be laboratories of democracy. Uh, and that's the way the system was designed to function, and that's what the federal government ought to allow them to do. It's come with different models and the best ones people will adopt. I'm part of 22 Too Many organization. It's a nonprofit organization with raising awareness on the veteran epidemic of suicide. I started wearing a lot in 2005. I was in the infantry and I was a mortarman. Served on the front line. I had a gun, a guns. Uh, shot at me the uh, death that I saw and have had to put on people has messed with me a lot mentally. I've got a lot of grief. I've got a lot of uh, inside mental conflict. How can medical marijuana help people like you? I'm standing here today because of it. Um, if not, if I didn't have medical access, or access to medical marijuana, I would probably have taken my own life by now. Medical marijuana helps calm me down. Maps is focused on taking MDMA assisted psychotherapy and the necessary steps to make an FDA approved prescription medication. Many people have, that have gone through the research is uh, just incredibly inspiring hearing their experience and like seeing the joy they have in their life and kind of trying to imagine them in a hard time is. Uh, really reaffirming. We're here to say, ask mom about the casualties of the drug war. We call for a focus on saving lives and every medical incarceration. My old son spent 11 years fighting through the criminal justice system because he was arrested for, drug, for marijuana possession. My daughter got up on a Saturday morning, went kayaking with friends, and took half a gram of white powder that turned out to be ecstasy that was 91% pure. Um, and she collapsed and died three hours later. We know that drugs are widely available. You, there's no minimum age, there's no need for ID, um, and there's no label. I had my daughter had a label with how much, um, was, how much ecstasy was in it, and dosage and so on. You know, she, she might still be here. The government has changed recently in Canada. The government? What, what are your expectations about the drug policy changes? Well, I can say that the first day I woke up happy since the day my daughter died was the day after the election. And I woke up to know that we had a majority government, a government that was ready for change, a government that would listen to its constituents and actually put into practice what we've been asking for from the Conservative government for many years. Do you expect that some new Absolutely. I think uh, the Prime Minister uh, now, uh, when he was running, he stood shoulder to shoulder with the Mayor of Montreal and uh, was very clear he supported Montreal's uh, uh, application for three supervised injection sites. Can you explain uh, uh, what was the ruling of the Supreme Court in Mexico on A case of four individuals was brought before the court where they were asking for permission to grow and consume cannabis for their personal use. They had requested this as a right 
as a human right that's, that's in our Constitution. They had asked this of the government, they had been denied, and so then they, they created a, a legal case against the government saying that they needed access. And the court ruled in favor, four judges to one, saying that in fact it is part of the full and free development of the personality to be able to consume and have substances as long as they don't hurt anyone else around them. This is a mock supervised injection facility and the project is called Safe Shape. We're now starting to reach out and form what is in essence a national alliance of harm reduction organizations, syringe access programs that are dedicated to realizing the vision of supervised injection facilities in virtually every metropolitan area in the U.S. That is the grand goal. Then this year you are awarded for the wonderful work you are doing around harm reduction and uh, overdose prevention. Congratulations for that. Uh, how do you see the, the trends around naloxone? It's really a no-brainer when you think about it. This is what is a pure antidote. It has no effects of its own. And we have people dying in huge numbers. Why not make it available to them? You know, where's the downside? Naloxone, I think because of its simplicity, is in, in, in 19 years, uh, it has cut its swath through the insanity that is the drug war in the United States. And that's been really nice to see. Can you tell me about the work that is doing in New York City? event where he announced about 1,500 units that were getting back um, of supportive housing. About a month prior to that, we had another victory, which was the uh, Fair Chance Act, uh, where people who are coming home from incarceration will be able to get a job without being discriminated, you know, discriminated upon. Not one other community has been disassembled and harmed because the black community has been harmed by this dirty, stinking drug war. You wonder why a 14-year-old is out selling cocaine because his mother is working three jobs and still can't pay the rent because minimum wage is seven dollars and forty-five cents an hour and his father is in jail on crack charges because every 28 grams of crack is a mandatory five years and it takes 500 grams of cocaine to get the same amount of time but who's going to have crack black people we represent a space of a certain level of that enslavement has taken the form of. So first it was the actual physical chains of enslavement, of being tied. And for me, policing is the way in which white America continues to replicate the cycle of enslavement that reminds itself of the power relationship on which this society is based. Everything that happens to us is a precursor of what is in store for you. So if you don't understand that, then you don't understand that our fight for freedom is your fight for freedom. Because one of the burdens of oppressed people is to be the agent and the catalyst of the freedom of their oppressors.
Peter Eastbot, ACLU, thank you so much for that fantastic reason. So if you were listening carefully on Friday morning, I told you you had a special treat to open up the plenary tonight. And that is, there is really nobody elected to office who ever stuck his neck out so far and did so much to transform the debate about the drug war and drug policy in America. And that is the former mayor of Baltimore, Kurt Schmoke. on Friday why we're renaming the Ledet Award to the Kurt Schmoke Award and, and you know and it's gonna be known from that you know henceforth but I gotta tell you back in the late 80s when I was teaching at Princeton to start to write and speak and then this elected official just stood up at a leave at a, at, a, at, a, at a conference of mayors and as I told you threw his notes away and said this drug war makes no sense makes no sense and he didn't just say it once, he continued saying it through 12 years in office. He joined the boards of this organization. Then he became the dean at Howard University Law School. He kept speaking out. He's now the president of the University of Baltimore. He is my friend. He is my ally. He's been an extraordinary leader for this movement and in this country. Kurt Schmoke, Kurt, please come on.
make improvements in our community until we found a way to take the profit out of distributing uh, drugs at the street level. And that uh, led more and more thinking, and then fortunately read uh, Ethan's uh, work and uh, was able to uh, bring some sense to my inchoate ideas. I heard that uh, you, you uh, listened to Dan Morheim, uh, uh, Delegate Dan Morheim, uh, at the, the conference. Um, he is uh, continuing the battle uh, in our state. Uh, just recently at, uh, at Johns Hopkins, we had a, a conference, and we looked at a, a number of, of, of issues, many of which you have uh, considered over the last uh, few days, uh, decriminalization, legalization, uh, medicated uh, assisted treatment, needle exchange and safe injection facilities, uh, sentencing and re-entry, and then treatment on demand. And the, the thing that was so interesting, and I'm sure you found in your conference, is that when we, we uh, identified examples of progress being made, we could see it in cities, in states, in countries, so it was just coming together and collaborating on an international basis that we're able to move this thing forward. This is not just a local problem or a national problem, as we all know. This is an international problem. If we can solve it internationally, we will save a lot of lives and help uh, communities around the world. So I just uh, uh, came by to uh, say uh, uh, thank you. I, I appreciate uh, the uh, award being named for me, though I, I really beg Ethan though. Let me be hyphenated with Ladane, but uh, it, it just it just didn't uh, work out uh, that way. But um, keep uh, going and stay optimistic. I, I just remember that in uh, uh, just getting needle exchange back in the eighties in, in Baltimore, nobody said that we uh, could get it uh, done, and yet we persisted and we brought friends in. In fact, we brought friends in from Rotterdam who helped us out a great deal in persuading our legislature. We're going to make progress. We're going to win on and this. And it's, we're going to win not just because there's a narrow group of advocates. We're going to win because people will understand that this is all about justice. This is about fairness. This is about bringing science, uh, not politics, to the war on drugs. And hopefully, the best days of our countries are still ahead of us. Thank you all very much. So much, Kurt. So those of you who have been with these closings before know how this works here. The rest of the people speaking on this closing did not know they were going to be speaking on this closing until a few hours ago. Nor did I. But what I did was ask around to see who were people who were making a, a real impression of what they said, whether on a panel or from the audience. People had not had a chance to speak on a bigger stage yet. And so a half dozen people are going to come up here and each one of them knows they got six minutes say what they want to say. The first person I'm going to call on is a student from the University of West Indies in Jamaica, Vicki Hansen. Vicki, come on up.
conversation. I mean, it's, it's really important for us to be here, not just for Jamaica, but for the Caribbean. Um, it's given a voice, but I don't want you to hear my voice. I want you to hear the voice of the birds, the voice of those in this industry who has been criminalized. I know our Minister of Justice was given a award for creating a new framework, a new approach to drugs in Jamaica, decriminalizing five, five plants, two ounces, um, removing the criminal records for persons who have been given charges for possessions of small amount. But I think we need to go further. It's, it's, it's more than decriminalizing. I mean, we still have, even this week, there was a young lady who was given 12 months in prison for trying to export one pound of ganja cannabis because she wanted to pay her school expenses. She now has to serve time in prison just for one pound. I mean, we need to change the framework to stop the harm to that young lady who's just trying to build a better life for herself. As the issue of reparation and social justice came up in our session, and I, I, I raised the issue of access to land, access to capital, because we're talking about persons who engage in growing cannabis and growing an illegal plant because they want to survive, and they're criminalized, they're seen as drug traffickers because of just trying to survive. And we need to change that discourse. We, we have a placard that says, stop the harm, United Nations and members. We need to raise our voices here in, in this conference and go home and raise that pressure on our various governments to change the entire approach. The reform doesn't stop here. It has to go further. It has to go further to protect the lives of the birds. Goods for me in Jamaica, they are important because it's not just about going for wealth, it's going to support your community, to support your family. We talk about persons who are being criminalized and put in jail and leave their children behind. So we need to change that discourse. And I want us to really cause it to leave here, to go home and change the way we look at persons who are involved in planting drugs, as they call it, planting can. For me, it's a herb. Ask the man's a herb. <laughs>
talked back to the police officer, found himself in a jail cell, and was beaten to death by somebody. Uh, and I'm proud that DPA arranged, if I recall correctly, for the same coroner who went down to investigate what happened to Michael Brown and Ferguson to go down to Jamaica and see what happened there. And his sacrifice helped move things in Jamaica. The next speaker is a medical anthropologist and indigenous people's activist, Juliana Willis. Juliana? with an indigenous greeting from the Mayan language, I'm happy in my heart to see you, my drug reform family. I've been going to this conference, for, this is my second conference here, I came here in 2013, but I have been involved in drug reform for quite a while. I used to live on the west coast where I began in harm reduction uh, intervention. I was trained by MAPS at Burning Man in 2005, and since then I've been doing workshops at festivals to teach people safe tripping, so that can kind of mitigate all the work I have to do on the back end when they don't trip safely. So um, I am presently in school, and I am a volunteer with Operation ID, where we do forensic analysis on the remains of migrants who died trying to cross the border. So I literally handle the skeletons of people who are trying to make it to the U.S. because they're fleeing cartel violence. I am also a human rights observer with several detention centers in Texas where several women are being housed right now while they're being evaluated to see whether or not they are worthy of refugee status here in the U.S. And I can tell you that unequivocally, most of them are deported. And Obama has deported more refugees from Central America than any president before him. I'm also here in the capacity of an indigenous activist because I've been in this movement since about 2004, actually, and during that time, I have been waiting for indigenous voices to be part of this dialogue. That has not really been happening, and I've actually had to take the opportunity at times to call attention to that. I am indigenous. I am Comanche on my mother's side. On my father's side, I am Chiricahua, Apache, and I am also Mayan. So the only way that I can actually reconcile the privilege I have as an indigenous person relative to what I do have is that I work for my people and the uplifting of them. And I do have to say that I was a little bit, or more than a little bit, dismayed that the few panels that were dedicated to indigenous people did not really include many indigenous voices, only one. And that person was actually from South America. There was no representation for North American people on our homeland in discussions about indigenous rights and culture and the use of psychotics, psychoactive substances that we have given to the world. So, so there's a couple things that I want to kind of you know, say since we're all friends here. If you've ever had the chance to use peyote, raise your hand. Let's be honest, because I won't tell on you. <laughs> I just want to let you know that I'm the first person in at least four generations in my family to be able to use peyote. Nobody else in my family, on my mother or my father's side, and they're both from peyote-using tribes, has had access to this sacrament. I have a lot of family who is struggling with addiction and all the other effects of colonization. 
and I was really disheartened to see two panels devoted to acid forfeiture and none on the epidemic of native addiction and suicide on the reservations in Canada and here in the US. I do want to say that I was really, really happy to see the Black Lives Matter activists here. You all are so important to what's going on, and we do live in a very special time right now where we can actually start to heal some of those wounds caused by enslavement of people and genocide, and there's a couple things that were said by a few of those women on the panel that I wanted to actually bring to your attention, and I think it was Deborah Smalls who said, um, I'm sorry, I'm trying to move out my glasses. Uh, <laughs> okay, I gotta break them out, sorry. I'm kind of getting blind as back here. Okay. Deborah knows what she said, but she said, drug policy reform provides theory and practice to dismantle racism. Erasure is racism, and I'm really hoping that in the next conferences that we have, we can move forward to include indigenous voices because my people are dying on the res, and they're dying at the border. We're about to begin a UN Special Assembly on Drugs, and Latin America is not being represented adequately here. Latin America is suffering disproportionately because of American consumption. I had the opportunity last night to meet and mourn with a mother who lost four sons in the drug war in Mexico. Meeting her and seeing what she and her family are going through is the only thing that gets me out of bed. And the only thing that helps me to be able to do the work I do, to be in the lab and working on the bodies of these peoples whose family have no idea what happened to them, and not knowing is one of the worst things that you can actually go through. We're not on the radar yet, and I really need for you all to do a little bit more to center indigenous voices. I don't think it's lack of concern, I just think it's lack of being informed. I hope that's what's going on. Native people have always shared what they had, even in the face of colonization, even in the face of genocide, and we will continue to share. If you want to actually learn about these medicines, that we have relationships that span millennia, you need to learn about us. and start talking with indigenous people. Thank you for listening. Indonesia. 
the country known best in North America for killing drug users in cold blood, and most recently for recruiting piranhas and crocodiles to guard a pro proposed prison for drug offenders located on a remote island. With over 250 million people, Indonesia is the fourth largest country in the world and the world's largest Muslim country. The challenges we face in terms of drug policy are similar across all of Asia. There is a for on drugs raging across most of my region. But Asia is far behind in terms of drug policy reform advocacy. Governments in Asia are a lot less open and far less inclusive or responsive of civil society in the decision-making process. In fact, civil society and community forces are often cooked and silenced. Our president declared a new war on drugs early last year. In the last eight months, my community has experienced serious human rights violations including forced treatment and detention, disclosure of personal information and medical records, extortion, abuse including women sexual abuse by the police. In 2015 alone, Indonesia executed 14 people on drug-related offenses and has planned to execute more next year. So why I, I do continue to fight a battle that seems impossible? Why I do continue to advocate on behalf of the drug user community? I became an activist just, I'm really young, in 2007, after I was shot by the police. Back then, I was a drug user on the streets on my hometown. One night, two police officers chased me, arrested me, bring me to the cemetery yard and torture me and finally shot me in the leg from behind, direct in front of my face. Then they dragged me to a, the, the, the deserted area, hung me upside and down. They tortured and beat me so that I would provide information about my drug dealer. After leaving me there to die, they exposed my personal details on the media. That experience changed my whole life. I became tired of seeing and experiencing injustice and ready to fight to be treated equally to other citizens. I became tired of seeing all of my friends in prison for minor position charge, which ruined their life and those of their families. I became tired of seeing my community be systematically excluded from basic healthcare. My outrage and my anger become more powerful than my fear. Today I continue to advocate because these issues are still with us. Drug users in Indonesia and other, all over the world continue to have their basic rights violated, continue to be put in prison on mandatory treatment and they continue to be systematically excluded from national insurance scheme in Indonesia. I'm extremely inspired to have connected with such inspiring activists at this conference. 
It is clear to me that the movement to end the war on drugs is growing stronger, larger, and more resilient every year. But we must make this a global movement. While we continue to fight our smaller battles, we must unite our voice so that no country or region is left outside of the movement. We must learn from each other, strategize together, and advocate together. The best time in our life are the moments when we realize and put to use the freedom that we didn't know we had. Thank you. The next speaker is a man from Missouri with a story to tell, Jeff Mazansky. Each and every one of you that come to these conventions, 
that learn things, that are able to take it home and to different places and tell other people about it, to spread the word, to let people know that cannabis is not the drug that they claimed it was. It's medicine. It can help so many around the world. Our veterans are needing it. Our children are needing it. And we ourselves are needing it. And uh, if we remember that, and I'll keep the fight one way, and I'm sure we all gonna have a few differences here and there. But the main focus is getting it legal so nobody else has to go to jail. Once we do that, or as, as while we're doing that, what we need to do is start fighting more for these guys that are in prisons. Yeah. They went through a lot of suffering. I was locked up in 1994. I learned a lot while I was in there. I learned how the guys got put away from their families. How they weren't able to watch their kids grow up. How some of their grandkids grew up and got married. And then you didn't see none of them. They weren't involved. And by that, we ended up with families that were in there. I'd seen guys have their sons come in there. Ended up in the same cells with them. The reason why is because they weren't there to help, to mentor. Because it's tough trying to be a father from the inside. I was lucky. My children were a little bit older when I got locked up. But I still spent one third of my life in prison. And I pray nobody else has to. So, with people like you, we can stop it all. Uh, you're marvelous. I've learned so much. And I'll be right alongside you fight. Any place I can go, anything I can do, I'm going to get. Thank you very much. effectively a community service. <laughs> and he got clemency just a few months ago because of advocacy by people who cared about his becoming a free man. <laughs> I didn't plan it this way, but the next speaker is from Missouri. Ferguson, Missouri. T-Dog, come on up. Yo, <laughs> how y'all doing? Uh, I'm honored to be asked to speak. Uh, I don't think y'all understand how important your work is, uh, not just to your community, but to my community. Uh, when you look at it, 
and see all the turmoil and pain that we go through in the inner cities and in the urban community and in black communities. A lot of this is centered around strictly the, the drug war. Besides racism and classism, it's around the drug war. The hashtags, the fact that Mike Brown was followed and harassed by Darren Wilson, that's, that's part of the drug war. Uh, before standing in front of armored vehicles and MRAPs in Ferguson, I've seen them firsthand my entire life. Uh, the MRAPs and the door rammers coming into communities, breaking in doors and houses. So the, the 1033 and these militarized police have been terrorizing our neighborhoods long before 2014 in August. And that was around the drug war. Um, what I want to do for y'all this evening is I have a new album coming out. It's called The Drop the Spill the Cup, which is a Mexican proverb similar to what we say here in the U.S., which is the straw that broke the camel's back, basically meaning enough is enough. We no longer will accept the treatment that we, that's been bestowed on our people. We will no longer accept these murders. We will no longer accept being criminalized. We will no longer accept this pain. And again, I want to thank you all for the work that you do. Again, you don't understand how important it is. Uh, it's not just about legalizing marijuana. It's also going to help save lives. It's not just about giving people the right uh, to have the ability to do any substances that's going to make their lives better, make their pain better. It's, it's about saving lives, and it's going to save a lot of lives. This is the introduction to my album. We come from the bottom. Project profits, profit and profits, killer. Another black man for the white-faced capitalist dollar. Watch the flash from Impalas. Crack sandwich bags in my pockets. You went last with the goblins. We shoot back blasts at the coppers. We say, fuck America, because it's stolen land built by the slaves. Judges selling kids to the prison early in sixth grade. And they wonder why we scream FTP. When we get free cased every day and black people make up over 80% of the jail pop in this land of the free. This for Little Wayana, Rakia Boy, and Freddie Gray. If I dare bias Mike Brown, so fuck Sally Mae. Them college law refunds put plenty dope in these alleyways. From Guerrero to Palestine, I am after mine. Lebanon, Mackie Lebanon, strapped like a Decepticon. Black lives don't matter to Iggy and Mac Miller. And Ronald Reagan was the first American crack dealer. We got a black president, but the hood batted it up. Fuck a trap queen, me, I'd rather have a Coretta. An Angela or a Sada. Black tux like a Sinatra. Jay-Z not the only hustler that said it met with Obama. I'm two killers, two miller for these cool niggas. The two lift and remove ceilings like renovation. Murder with verses since Ferguson floors poison chemical agents on my tongue. The ramifications of being related to Ramses and Helen. Tear gas spit it back in the face of the dragon. Descendant of Abraham who rendered ancient Damascus. Paper pistols and power, plotting, planning, and pillage. All these rappers is cowards. I'd rather die a giant than insignificant. Wake up in the morning, mind state is so militant. Ready for whatever the world can handle is brilliant, infatuated with thug. Representing my section, elimination of pests, perpetrating pistols, be pestilence. No competitors present can fathom roaming with elephants. Born in the gutter, flew out the struggle, riding the Pegasus. No other choice but the hustle, don't give a fuck, so we sell a bit. 
here and there trying to thrive. Fuck survival. We prideful. Thank you. person going to come up. She is a brilliant physician and she is a brilliant writer. She's making millions think by talking on national television, writing books, and just speak wherever she can. Dr. Julie Holland. So yeah, I am I am a physician, and um, it is sort of my my calling and my honor and my duty uh, to alleviate pain and suffering, and that's why I fight our drug policy, which is uh, I will tell you as a psychiatrist, our drug policy is insane. It is not based on it's not based on anything sane or rational or scientific. It is based on shame and stigma and xenophobia and capitalism and greed and corporate malignancy um, and ignorance and racism. Um, and I'm happy to fight it. I'm proud to fight it. And, uh, you know, I... Uh, one of the things that I'm very interested in is psychedelic research. And, um, I'm the medical monitor for MDMA uh, post-traumatic stress disorder studies and cannabis post-traumatic stress disorder studies. Um, uh, I am very interested in uh, people feeling connected with other people and uh, the concept of empathy. Um, and Ian Benwee talked a little bit about a psychedelic experience that allowed him to see his trauma from the mind of the perpetrator, and that that alleviated a lot of pain for him, and I thought that was really important. Um, so there are some drugs that allow you to have other perspectives, and bigger perspectives, or allow you to, uh, to feel connected or feel an, uh, empathy for another person, or for yourself. Um, so these things are healing, these things are therapeutic, and to be denied access to them is obviously blatantly unfair. Uh, what we do have access to, especially women today in America, we have access to medicines to numb us. Uh, uh, I like to call it the, the big pharma speedball. They're making plenty of money off of opioids and amphetamines. Um, and, uh, the other thing that's happening is that one out of four women, women in America right now are taking a psychiatric medication. So we have a lot of people who are sort of comfortably numb, sweeping some of their symptoms under the carpet, um, as opposed to having access to something uh, more potent and more effective that would help them take the carpet out back, beat the hell out of it, vacuum the whole floor, and then put the carpet back down. Uh, one of the things that's particularly concerning for me as a 
psychiatrist is that was that our sort of national diagnosis has morphed from neurotic to psychotic. That we've gone from everybody being on antidepressants to people being on antipsychotics now, especially kids. So I really think uh, we need to pay attention to what we're taking and what our children are taking, and you know what that there are some better options that we can be more awake and more aware and more empathically connected. But that means we're going to feel more. Um, I understand that it's nice to feel less and that there are some drugs that allow you to feel less, but I really think that that's sort of the wrong direction for our country to go and the wrong direction for the world to go in, that what we all need um, is to be more aware of the terrible things that are, that are going on. Um, I said earlier today, like, if you're, if you're not traumatized, you're not paying attention. So, solution is is to take more sort of mind-numbing, body-numbing medicine and turn away. And, um, you know, our veterans are particular, uh, Ian also, <laughs> I'm quoting you a lot, Ian, uh, was, was calling the veterans our, our moral conscience. Um, you know, it's hard to see how hurt they are, how wounded they are psychically, um, but it's because they're carrying out terrible work that we've sent them to do. And it's hard to look at how terribly we've treated the indigenous populations and uh, people of the First Nation. Um, we don't want to look because it's so terrible, and it's sort of like this—the Jungian shadow—and you know, facing the darkness and the terrible things in ourselves and seeing how it manifests um, in our country. Um, and I'm just remembering. Wait, Ethan told me to be uplifting, so let's not. So let's not look at that or talk about that. Um, you know, we need we need to to dig down to the places where we've been hurt, and we need to dig down to where the malignancies are, and we need to pull them out and examine them, and then reintegrate with them absent. Um, I'm a harm reductionist, and the foundation of harm reduction to me is education, and that's why conferences like this are so important because we all learn from each other, um, and. We, you know, we need to embrace transparency and sharing data with each other and embrace uh, freedom, cognitive freedom, cognitive liberty. Um, the, you know, the ability to, uh, these are victimless crimes for the most part. I was, I was, uh, my daughter Molly is here, uh, my whole family is here with me this weekend. And um, she, she spoke earlier today, and I hear she did a good job, but we were speaking at the same time. But um, I, took, I took her and I showed her a safe injection facility and what that would look like, and I explained um, to my daughter about... Um, but even if you don't care about somebody who's shooting drugs, you should at least care that if they have clean needles, that there will be less... HIV and hepatitis C in the general population. <laughs> um, and you know, uh, one of the you know one of the first things I ever learned about and uh, thought about in college was this idea that everybody should have access to condoms and clean needles. I'm like, of course, it's a no-brainer. Of course, naloxone is a no-brainer. I mean, like, who is it hurting to help these people? Um, it's it's pretty terrifying what's happening now. But I, I am, 
optimistic about where we're going. I am optimistic about Canada and Mexico and the sort of peer pressure that will happen in America, <laughs> if nothing else. Um, and I'm, I'm optimistic about not just minimizing harm, but, but starting to talk about maximizing benefits. That these drugs, they are medicinal plants, they are sacred visionary plants, and I include cannabis in this. Um, you know, this is a we need to sort of re. Somebody say like sacralize. I don't know if that's a word, but uh, to recontextualize the drugs in, in ritual context um, and to and to re sort of make them sacraments again. Um, I think it's important when we leave. Here, and when you go home and people want to know where you were, tell them where you were, tell them what you learned, out yourself as a functional drug-using adult. I think it's very important. The translators who have done this amazing job. Thank you. I need to thank my amazing, remarkable colleagues at the Drug Policy Alliance. about what an amazing Team Drug Policy Alliance is, but the, the, the 60 odd, 60 very odd colleagues of mine, you know, I mean, from Jim Clakes who organized this, and Hannah Hetzler, and Stephanie Polito, and Asha Vandelli, and Stephen Gutwick, who started this thing off, who organized this entire program. Almost every one of my colleagues involved in organizing some element of this. The people who raised the money to pay for the scholarships, and the people who orchestrated all the finance of this thing. Everybody, it was all hands on deck for this thing. They worked around the clock. Drug Policy Alliance, we ended up subsidizing this conference by hundreds of thousands of dollars. We forego all sorts of other things because we believe in the importance of this gathering. So will you please give a big round of support of applause. Because, you know, 
I said it on Thursday, we are the history and we are the future. I think it's one thing that I ask of all of you, it is to learn, to keep learning, to learn and learn to keep your ears and your hearts and your minds open, to read and watch and to listen and to listen deeply, deeply, to stay open to the possibility of continually growing and changing, to understand that what brings you to this conference and to drug policy reform in the first place, that what brought you is just a part of something so much greater and so much larger. That for most of you coming from America, hearing what is happening around the rest of the world, both that is inspiring as well as that is terrifying, that is our struggle as well. That for those of you who come here because of the issues and the problems of mass incarceration we deal with, understanding the incarceration that operates around the world, understanding all the other harms of the drug war, understanding the rights of people to use drugs without being persecuted for doing so, not to be demonized, not to be left for dead, to be hand given a helping hand. That's our mutual obligation to keep learning and then, as you learn, to teach what you learn. To teach what you learn. I am overwhelmingly committed to the notion that, that this is not a place where we preach to the converted, but where a small group of people come together so that we can become empowered to become ever more powerful agents out in the world. That we come here with the ability to go out and teach people who have never thought or cared about this stuff, of people who operate from ignorance and fear. That obligation to learn deeply and then to teach what we know, not to be an echo chamber in this little hotel room, but to go and to go. When we go into the south, into the, the south with the highest incarceration rates in the world two years from now, we will be more successful and more welcome to the extent by which we teach what we have learned. We cannot suffice about just talking to one another. Every one of you know that. We have to be willing to talk to those people we don't like, who don't look like us, who don't sound like us, and who don't vote like us. But that is how we're going to move to the next level. You know, these are... are as always and they will as they will probably always be challenging times you know we look at what happened in Paris just a few days ago and we can see the ways in which evil and terror lurk in this world and in which we will never ever be free of that it's how we manage it we look at the people in our government and elsewhere, the people running office who want to respond to that sort of terror and evil in all the wrong ways by expelling and punishing those people who are fleeing that very terror. And doing with their fears today and politicians taking advantage of those fears today, just what politicians and others did with the fears around drugs and in the past. And that's why our struggle is not just about ending the war on drugs in America, not just about ending the war on drugs around the world. It is about taking the values of science, compassion, health, and human rights, of fighting against racism and classism and subjugation, against ignorance and fear, and taking those values to advance more closely to a civilized way of dealing with drugs and to a more civilized world altogether. In that respect, I am going to keep fighting as long as I can drug policy a 
alliance is going to keep fighting. The organizations who join us here are going to keep fighting. I am counting on all of you to keep fighting. We are not going to stop. We're going to get bigger. We're going to get stronger. We are going to not let our internal conflicts ever tear us apart because we have a commitment and a movement for freedom and justice. Thank you very much.
because that's what this is really about. It's about energizing us to, be, to go back and energize others. Because it is only together, all of us, that we are going to be able to dismantle the war on drugs. Juntos, pueblo unido, together. We've heard a lot about dark days when I was younger. One of the most powerful things my father ever said to me was, mijo, si se puede. And I heard it again from Melones Huerta, and I recently heard it from Deborah Small, si se puede. Because together, together we can work to bring our loved ones home, to find our missing loved ones, juntos. So, we're going to try and get President Obama at the White House to hear us yelling, si se puede. And we're going to start with this side saying, si this se side. puede. Okay? So if you can, come on. You guys all want to get up. You want to look around. Let's make some noise. Let's have people hear us. Drug Policy Alliance 2015 Reform Conference. I'm Radical Russ with CannabisRadio.com. We're going to make our way through the conference, say hi to everyone. A lot of friends, a lot of photo opportunities happening. Hi, Josie. We're live. How are you? Good. How are you? We're doing great. It's a great conference. Fantastic conference. I'm glad to see you here. Glad to see you. All right. Let's see who else we can see. So many. Everyone milling about now. Making our way through. Got to get my recorder from the back of the room. Howdy, how are you? That was so handy. Yes, it was. <laughs> The uh, awards dinner begins at 8 p.m. here. Not sure if I'm attending that or not. We'll uh, we'll find out for sure. Thanks for joining us here for our live coverage of the 2015 Reform Conference. If you missed earlier postings or earlier shows, we have two other episodes of the show. Six, eight... 6, 687, 688, and then this one should be 689. You can also visit my SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash RadicalRuss, and we'll have, uh, we'll have all sorts of information for you there. Gonna call it a night for tonight. Thanks for joining us, and until next time, take care of each other, tokers.